And let me just say this, and you can cut this out if you want to, Mike. But anybody out there who does not believe that we went to the moon, you can come talk to me and Buzz Aldrin, and we will set you straight. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He was a Texas boy who became a Navy test pilot and found everlasting fame as the fourth astronaut to walk on the moon. This week, we look at the life of Alan Bean. But first, what Texas food would make the best astronaut food? Well, I don't know if it would be the best, and it may be just because I've got it on the brain lately, but I like the idea of an astronaut up there in space eating a kolache. Maybe maybe from a tube if they still have to put everything in tubes, but Yeah, they don't. They just like shrink wrap it. Mm. Well, I don't know space but from a hole in the ground, so I got to sit no. No. I, no, I think a, I think a kolache would hold up pretty I well. I think a kolache, I mean it's like a, it'd be a it's, space donut. It's 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 relatively dense, so uh you don't have to worry about it, you know, being too uh flattened out by uh, being vacuum-packed. So, I mean, if I could throw you one and you could catch it and eat it, yeah. then I think it would Mark, be fine. Mark Watney would appreciate it. I think he would sure. definitely appreciate it. Well, listen, I think it's going to be a messy enterprise, but I'm, I'm a believer in doing firsts. So I think we need to get some brisket up there. <laughs> <laughs> we're going we're gonna to slow roast some brisket for about 12 hours. Uh <laughs> Out on the Lido deck of the space station. Uh, put it, put it on the solar panel I think, facing the sun. I, that would only take like two years to cook in space, I'm sure. <laughs> but, <clears throat> you know, I mean, yeah, brisket in space would just be humorous. That would be one of those. I mean, I mean if you're looking for some meme-worthy video, NASA, that's where it's at. Uh, truthfully, I mean, those wrapped-up hard pecan praline candy treat things they sell at weird truck stop restaurants. Those babies are space worthy. They are freeze dried and shrink wrapped and ready to go. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and they I only cost a you, quarter. I have to tell you, I just did a quick search on have astronauts ever eaten in brisket in space, and oh. uh, apparently, it's been done. You've defeated me, Google. It, and I and I think that I think while the caramely pralines might be okay, the the hard uh, maroon ones. Uh, they don't like things that make a lot of crumbs in this ISS. So pecan pralines may not work. But actually, the one answer that's the correct answer is bluebell homemade ice cream. That that would be the best <laughs> to be asked. We eat all we can, and we send the rest to space. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is marketing gold, people. <laughs> We're making you money, bluebell. Give us a call. Give NASA a call. <clears throat> no, no, call us and NASA. <laughs> We want to be involved in writing this copy. Alan Bean was born March 15, 1932, in the small town of Wheeler, in the far northeastern portion of the Texas Panhandle. His father worked for the U.S. Soil Conservation Service, and the Bean family spent several years living in Minden, Louisiana. For most of his early life, however, Bean lived in Fort Worth, where he was just a typical kid, excelling in sports and participating in the Boy Scouts. He graduated from R.L. Paschal High School in Fort Worth, Texas in 1950 and was admitted into the University of Texas at Austin, where he earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering in 1955. 
While he was at UT, Bean was commissioned a U.S. Navy ensign through the Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps. And after graduation, he became a naval aviator. Now, they don't call them pilots in the Navy because they're better than pilots. After completing naval flight school, Bean was assigned to Attack Squadron 44 at Naval Air Station Jacksonville in Florida. From 1956 to 1960, Bean flew the F-9F Cougar fighter and the A-4D Skyhawk attack aircraft, which were both high-performance jet aircraft for their time. The squadron alternated between shore and carrier deployments, among them on the USS Wasp and the USS Saratoga. The Wasp would later serve as a recovery carrier for four of NASA's Gemini capsules. After his time at Align Squadron, Bean attended the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School at Naval Air Station Patuxent River, Maryland. It was at Test Pilot School that he first met his future Apollo 12 commander, Pete Conrad, who was serving as an instructor. From 1960 to 1962, Bean flew as a test pilot on several types of naval aircraft. Following his assignment at the Naval Test Pilot School, he was assigned to another Navy attack squadron, VA-172, at Naval Air Station Cecil Field in Florida. He was flying the A-4 Skyhawk, but like many young test pilots of his time, Bean set his sights on a bigger prize. Everyone knew that for pilots, the hottest thing going was happening down in Cape Canaveral, where the Mercury program, which put the first American astronauts in space beginning in 1961, was in full swing. The president had just told the country that he wanted Americans to be on the moon before the end of the decade, and to do that, in the words of NASA administrators, we were going to need a lot more of those dashing throttle jockeys called astronauts. Alan Bean applied to the astronaut program and was selected by NASA as part of Astronaut Group 3 in 1963. He tried out the previous year, but was not selected for the second astronaut group, which became known as the New Nine. His friend, Pete Conrad, had been selected to that group throw. Among the others selected in Group 3, which was simply known as the 14, was another Navy friend of Bean's named Richard Dick Gordon, as well as a big Marine pilot named C.C. Williams. Williams was right at the outer edge of the maximum height requirements for the program, and Bean and Gordon later said that he spent all night before his physical jumping up and down on the concrete floor of their barracks in order to compress his spine so he could meet the six-foot height limit. Bean and the rest of the 14 completed astronaut training, and he was initially placed into the flight rotation. He was selected to be the backup command pilot, backing up John Young and Michael Collins for the Gemini 10 mission in 1966 with C.C. Williams as his co-pilot. However, Bean did not end up flying in the Gemini program and was unsuccessful in securing an early Apollo flight assignment. He was placed in the Apollo Applications Program in the interim. The Apollo Applications Program was a division of NASA that was tasked with looking into extended capabilities for the Apollo program and the Saturn rocket series that went beyond just getting to the moon. It included studies into the later lunar missions, including the development of the moon buggy, a future lunar base, Mars and Venus flyby missions, manned orbiting telescopes, and most importantly, a manned space station. Bean said that Pete Conrad called the AAP Tomorrowland because they were looking at stuff so far out that they'd never see it come to pass. When he worked in the AAP, Bean participated in studies examining the potential training need for prolonged periods of weightlessness the astronauts would experience in space, both in the moon missions and in future space applications. One of the methods that the AAP developed, and which Bean became an early proponent of, was using full water immersion to train for spacewalks. He actually became the first astronaut to drive in the neutral buoyancy simulator, 
which is still a primary training tool for astronauts to this day, as featured in the documentary Armageddon. Yeah, let's say that's the giant <laughs> deep uh, swimming pool at uh, Johnson Space Center. Yes, that is correct, sir. Well, on October 6, 1967, Bean's friend, astronaut C.C. Williams, was killed when the T-38 jet he was piloting suffered a total failure. Williams had been the backup pilot with Bean for the Gemini 10 mission, and as backups, they'd gone through the same training and simulation for the crew that actually went into space. Bean and Williams were as close as brothers, but while Bean had been working in the AAP, Williams was selected in the flight rotation to serve as backup lunar module pilot for the Apollo 9 mission, alongside backup Commander Pete Conrad and command module pilot Dick Gordon. Conrad and Gordon had been in space together already in the Gemini 11 mission. Pete Conrad needed to replace CC, and he went to the director of flight crew operations, Deke Slayton, and personally asked for Al Bean to be made part of his crew. Bean, Conrad, and Gordon went through the full training and preparation for the Apollo 9 mission, whose prime crew was Jim McDivitt, Dave Scott, and Rusty Schweikert. This mission, which occurred in March 1969, successfully tested the lunar excursion module, docking procedures, navigation, and backup life support systems in Earth orbit. Now it was Deke Slayton's practice to assign a backup crew as the prime crew on the third following mission from their backup stint. The mission to test out the LEM was originally supposed to be Apollo 8 in the rotation, but due to delays in completing the vehicle, it was decided to move Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders' mission, originally intended to further test the limb and medium Earth orbit, up to December 1968 so that they could complete a moonshot before the end of the year. McDivitt's mission became Apollo 9, and with no need for a further test of the limb, everyone's mission moved up. If it weren't for the mission swap, Pete Conrad's crew would have been in line for the first moon landing. Whatever the case, it was not meant to be. After Apollo 9 completed, Conrad, Gordon, and Al Bean were assigned in the flight rotation to Apollo 12, which at this point was destined to be the second mission to land on the moon after Apollo 11's Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. The Apollo 12 crew began their training for the mission, which would take place in November of 1969. As was common for the time, the three got matching gold and black Corvettes, and along with all the other astronauts, were often seen racing their Corvettes through the streets of suburban Houston, to and from the Johnson Space Center. After months of training, it was finally time. On November 14, 1969, on a stormy day at Cape Canaveral, Apollo 12, call sign Yankee Clipper, launched from the Kennedy Space Center. It was the first rocket launch attended by an incumbent U.S. president, Richard Nixon. 36 and a half seconds after liftoff, everything went haywire. Protective circuits on the fuel cells in the service module falsely detected overloads and took all three fuel cells offline, along with most of the command service module instrumentation. It turned out that the static generated by the huge rocket triggered a lightning discharge through itself and down to the Earth along the rocket's trail, all the way back to the gantry. 20 seconds later, a second strike knocked out the eight-ball attitude indicator. The vehicle continued to fly correctly, but the telemetry stream at Mission Control was garbled. No one on the ground or in the cockpit could tell that they were under control at all. The loss of all three fuel cells put the command service module, the main spacecraft, entirely on batteries, which were unable to maintain normal launch load. In the course of just a few seconds, the AC inverters dropped offline and tripped nearly every warning light on the control panel, and the mission was in danger of being aborted. 
Electrical, Environmental, and Consumables Manager John Aaron remembered the telemetry failure pattern from an earlier test when a power supply malfunctioned in the CSM signaling condition electronics. The SCE converted raw signals from instrumentation to standard voltages for the spacecraft instrument displays and telemetry encoders. Thinking quickly, Aaron told Flight Director Gerald Griffin, Flight, try SCE to AUX. Neither Griffin nor Jerry Carr, who was the CAPCON or Capsule Communication Station, knew what that was, and neither did Conrad or Gordon. But there was one guy who did. Texan Alan Bean, who was sitting right in front of the SCE control switch and had been in the earlier test in the simulator. He flipped the switch, and immediately all the alarms stopped, the fuel cells were restored, and the telemetry came back online. John Aaron earned a reputation of being a, quote, steely-eyed missile man. And Bean? Well, Al Bean just saved the day. Apollo 12 entered lunar orbit on November 18th after a flight of 250,000 miles, which is bigger than Texas, certainly. The next day, Bean and Conrad detached from Yankee Clipper in the LEM module Intrepid and at 0654 became the second manned spacecraft to land on the moon. Their target for landing was the Ocean of Storms, what they hoped would be near the landing site of an earlier Surveyor 3 probe. They exceeded expectations for their landing as Surveyor was within walking distance about 700 meters of their landing. It is the first and only time, so far, in history that humans have caught up to an unmanned probe. Conrad and Bean became the third and fourth men to walk on the moon, and over the next 18 hours, they went on two different EVAs on the moon's surface. They explored the ocean of storms, deployed several lunar surface experiments, collected components from Surveyor 3 for study, and installed the first nuclear-powered generator station on the moon to provide their power source. Bean was also responsible for a number of photography tasks for the mission, including taking color pictures of the moon, setting up a color television camera, and hopefully getting a picture of himself and Conrad together. He wasn't particularly successful at any of these. He accidentally exposed the TV camera's tube to the sun, which ruined it. And then, of course, he famously hit it with a hammer, which also didn't help much. He also accidentally left several rolls of film on the lunar surface and wasn't able to find the camera timer in time to be able to use it to get his shot with him and Conrad. Dick Gordon had better luck with pictures, as he was in lunar orbit in the command module, photographing landing sites for future missions. Bean and Conrad did manage to leave a few important items on the moon commemorating their stay. They left a plaque attached to the descent stage of Intrepid, which is unique. Unlike other plaques, this does not have a depiction of the Earth, and it's textured differently. Bean also left his silver astronaut pin, which you wear until you get into space, and then you get a gold one, and he left that on the moon. They also left C.C. Williams' flight wings on the moon in honor of their fallen friend. Bean also carried with them a silkscreen print of his alma mater's fight song, The Eyes of Texas, although he didn't leave it on the moon. After two more days, Apollo 12 splashed in the Pacific Ocean, though there was one more camera-based incident Bean had to deal with. A 16-millimeter film camera dislodged during splashdown and struck Bean right above the eye. It knocked him out briefly and caused a concussion requiring six stitches to close. Other than that, the mission was an absolute success and the crew were heroes. President Nixon even gave them all a promotion to Navy captain. After the moon landing, Bean and Conrad were both assigned to the Skylab program, where their experience with the Apollo capsule and with long-duration spaceflight put them in good stead. 
Conrad served as commander of Skylab 2, the first manned mission to America's first space station. This mission proved the station's habitability and mostly consisted of repairing damage to the station that it had suffered during launch. Being served as commander of Skylab 3, the second manned mission to Skylab, from July 29th to September 25th of 1973. With him, on the 59-day, 24.4 million mile world record-setting flight, were scientist-astronaut Owen Garriott and Marine Corps Colonel Jack R. Lusma. During the mission, Bean tested a prototype of the manned maneuvering unit, a version of which is still in use today, and performed one spacewalk outside the Skylab. The crew of Skylab 3 accomplished a remarkable 150% of its pre-mission goals. For his next assignment, Bean was backup spacecraft commander of the United States flight crew for the joint American-Russian Apollo-Soyuz test project in July of 1975. This was the mission that finally put Mercury 7 original astronaut Deke Slayton into space. Bean retired from the Navy in October of 1975 as a captain, but stayed with NASA, where he served as head of the Astronaut Candidate Operations and Training Group in the Astronaut Office until he retired from NASA in 1981. All told, during his career as an astronaut, Bean logged 1,671 hours and 45 minutes in space, of which... 10 hours and 26 minutes were spent in EVAs on the moon and in Earth orbit. After he retired, Bean, who'd always been a talented artist, took up painting full-time. He said that in his 18 years as an astronaut, he was fortunate enough to visit worlds and see sights no artist's eye, past or present, has ever viewed firsthand, and he hoped to express these experiences through his art. He said, I'm the only one who can paint the moon because I'm the only one who knows whether that's right or not. Bean's paintings include Lunar Grand Prix, Rock and Roll on the Ocean of Storms, and The Greatest Picture That Never Was, in which he imagined what that timed picture of him and Conrad would have looked like. Bean used real moon dust in his paintings, which he got from the dirty keepsake patches from his spacesuit. He added tiny pieces of the patches to his paintings, which made them unique. He also used a hammer, which he'd used to pound the flagpole into the lunar surface, and a bronze moon boot to texture his paintings. Bean also wanted to add color to the moon. He said, quote, I had to figure out a way to add color to the moon without ruining it. If I were a scientist painting the moon, I would paint it gray. But I'm an artist, so I can add colors to the moon. In July 2009, for the 40th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, Bean exhibited his lunar paintings at the Smithsonian Institute's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., before that, his paintings had been seen in the extra features of the Apollo 13 and From the Earth to the Moon DVDs. He has also written several books about his Apollo experiences, including Apollo, an eyewitness account by astronaut explorer artist Moonwalker, and Mission Control, This is Apollo, both of which were with author Andrew Chaikin, and My Life as an Astronaut with Beverly Franconi, and the art book Painting Apollo. Alan Bean died on May 26, 2018, in Houston, Texas, at the age of 86. His death followed the sudden onset of illness two weeks before while he was in Fort Wayne, Indiana. At the time of his death, Bean was married to his second wife, Leslie. He had a son, Clay, and a daughter, Amy Sue, both from his first marriage. In his life for service, Bean received the Navy Astronauts' Wings, the Navy Distinguished Service Medal twice, and the NASA Distinguished Service Medal twice. He was awarded the Rear Admiral William S. Parsons Award for Scientific and Technical Progress, Texas Press Association's Man of the Year Award for 1969, 
and the Federation Aeronautique International Yuri Gagarin Gold Medal and the VM Komarov Diploma for his Skylab mission. He was a co-recipient of the Robert Collier Trophy, the Octave Chanute Award, and the Robert Goddard Memorial Trophy. He was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1983, the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997, and the National Aviation Hall of Fame for 2010. He was also a fellow with the American Astronautical Society and a member of the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. With Bean's death last week, there are now only four living humans who have walked on the moon. Today we celebrate Alan Bean's life and his legacy. I mean, for me, um, it's all, you know, I think Dave Foley nailed it in uh, the From the Earth to the Moon. Yes. It is absolutely a joyful episode of uh, television and certainly worth watching. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's... It's one of the it's the one of the best episodes of that of that miniseries. But yeah, yeah. What a great astronaut! What a great Texan! We should celebrate him more and more every day. Why are why isn't there an Alan Bean High School? Uh, There (laughs) there may be an Alan Bean High School actually. Uh, There's certainly he's certainly uh, there's a street named after him in Wheeler where he's from, uh, and his. there's a plaque at the hospital he was born at. So there's, there's a lot of honoring of being in, in, uh, and in Fort Worth at, at his own high school. There's a, there's a plaque honoring him as well. So, but you know, he's, he's the fourth man to walk on the moon. You know, he, he will, he will, that will always be something that, that he had that. And the fact is in the, the, the episode of the series does a really good job of showing him. He was, he was the last of his group to fly of the, uh, of the ones who survived he was the last of the 14 to go into space and he didn't think he was going to make it to the moon in the first place. So it was unfortunate that CC passed away, was killed, but uh, that, that left the opening for Albine to, you know, to really be part of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, he, he's a, he's a really interesting guy, very accomplished. Um, his paintings are amazing. And they they capture a humanity that um, you know the photos that uh, that came back from the moon don't really don't really capture in and of themselves. Just the the idea is like, hey, I'm an artist. I've actually been on the moon. Um, I can paint what that looks like in a you know with an artist's eye. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah, and there's an interesting tidbit that. Uh, there, while Bean didn't have a great amount of success with his pictures, Pete Conrad uh, took a picture of himself reflected in Al Bean's visor, uh, yeah. and that was named the number one selfie of all time. And it's one of the most <laughs> popular astronaut photos downloaded and and printed uh, yeah. anywhere. So it's it is a it's a really cool picture uh, of both of them. Uh, you, you you see Al Bean's visor, and you see you know. Gordon reflected, I mean, uh, Conrad reflected in it. So it's a cool, it's a picture. That's a really cool picture. Uh, And then another thing in in the movie, the the series talks about this, but uh, a fun, fun fact about that mission uh, is that uh, the ground crew, which was another group of astronauts who were the backup crew had put together their checklist to go on their wrists. They had these little flipboard checklists, the things that they were going to do. Well, they they inserted some photocopied pictures of Playboy Playmates into the the flipboard, and if you go to NASA's website, 
uh, with which I encourage you to do if you're an adult and not a child, uh, you can actually see in the official records of NASA those checkbook those flipbooks are part of their online collection. That's awesome. Well, you know that's. Uh... That that's <laughs> and so then that would have would <laughs> so that was the thirteen crew then. Nah, no, that was the fourteen crew. That well, at the time it was the fourteen crew before uh, Al Shepard flipped things around. So uh, I think it was like Dave Scott and uh, some of the guys that went with fifteen and sixteen. It was a mixture of different people. Oh my gosh! Yeah. See, what a different time. What yeah. different, What a crazy time. Uh, yeah. Wow. I just and then they then I don't know if it's it if they actually had the gold and black Corvettes, but in the ep, in the episode they're driving around in gold and black Corvettes, and it's like, I, I yeah I've heard lots of stories about the astronauts that the, the Houston car dealers gave all the astronauts Corvettes. Just this gave them to them. They didn't didn't charge them anything. Just well, here you go, boys. You know I think there was a thing too about like you know. It's rarefied air. It was rarefied air to be yeah. to be one of these guys. I mean, like I, I don't think they paid for their houses either. Or they didn't pay very much for their houses in Clear Lake either. Well, I think you know that's the thing. Uh, there, there's something to be said for Texas hospitality, uh, <laughs> and to be host to you know these these men who are going to to attempt something that uh, no you know something yeah. beyond the concept. I think it's hard because we grew up just after this. Just after man walked on the moon, and so for us it was a thing of this blew our parents' minds. But this was, uh, you know, and just as the same, they, they say that uh, anything happens before your was it before your five you take for granted. Anything that uh, happens before your was it thirty five you accept, and anything that happens after your thirty five is magic or something. <laughs> 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 you know, so it's a it's a, there you know. So I think that there's something, but there is this magic around what these guys represent, and so special oh, yeah. that that he was a Texan, and and yeah. for God's sake, from Wheeler. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There there were a couple of Texans that did walk on the moon, but but Albine is is the the one that stands out to me the most. And uh, and, and and if you watch him, he's actually on the extra features. I think of the Apollo 13 uh, D Blu-ray set, uh, Blu-ray DVD. He's on the extra features talking about his paintings and talking about the moon and and uh, you kind of watch him and you watch him and he's he seems just like a down-to-earth really really friendly fun guy and that was the reputation that group had was they were the, those three guys were were just they're good friends and they were fun loving guys and they're all navy guys so that was they were the only all navy crew <laughs> um but yeah <laughs> I don't know how true it is that it may be Liberty, but it may be true that, you know, in the in the episode, they all their hat, their caps, but that had their mission patch on them and stuff had beanies, had uh, the propellers on the top of them. <laughs> I'm sure there's probably uh, and I know that there are some some real space uh, fans out there that can probably point us to the NASA archives of where we can find all those photos. There's this focus on the moon, but it's like you also forget like, oh, you know. He spent a lot of time in space. He had other other in, yeah. innovations as well. I mean, um, self-powered space flight and the space lab with all the time he spent. And then the fact that he was, you know, such a big part of getting Deke Slayton in space too. And yeah. then went on to be a NASA administrator. I mean, the guy was, you know, 
he was he trained. Yeah, he trained. He he supervised the training of all the shuttle astronauts. That that was the selection and shuttle uh, selection and training mm-hmm. of the sh- of the shuttle astronauts. So um, he would have supervised uh, Robert Crippen, who's one of the first shuttle pilots. And, well, I mean, uh, a lot of those guys were already in. The yeah, program. but he was, I'm just saying he was a Texan. Yeah, as well. Yes, fellow Texan. Or Jerry Carr, uh, who was Capcom, who relayed the tri SCE to Ox. He he was in. He was in a group. He was already in NASA in '69. But uh, his, I think, one of his earliest. He may have gone to Skylab, and then he was he was a uh, shuttle pilot. So, <clears throat> so a lot of those guys were still in the program. But he was, you know, he would have he would have supervised a lot of those people coming in, uh, uh, supervised their training. Uh, and the, the big thing was that he was a huge proponent of that buoyancy lab. Um, that was well, that was his baby, uh, and. Because he was working on that Apollo applications for a for a um, space station, so he knew that he would have they would have to train astronauts in prolonged space as uh, weightlessness. If if you haven't seen it, go watch that episode of uh, From Earth to the Moon. I mean, watch the whole series, but yeah. uh, particularly that episode. It's called "That's All There Is." It's yep. episode seven. Mm. That's all there is. So, and then, like so many other Texans, Alan Bean shifts gears and says, you know, I've, I've done my duty. Now I'm going to go be an artist. And uh, it was really, in, it's inspiring. You look at the guy's work, it's great. He uh, took it very seriously and, um, you know, really had a, a, a great eye for it. And I think that that's a piece that's lost in so much of the advance and adventure of space is the technology of it, but then to really stop and appreciate the majesty of it and to be able to capture that in a way that relates to us. I think there's something to, yeah. to the idea of, of having the artist's eye. So the human element. Well, and that was, that was really, you know, that was the point of sending men to the moon, you know, to walk on the moon because the, the understood the need for, humanity to see this other world you know this other body uh and to be able to express that uh in lots of different ways in in the you know in the scientific ways but in personal ways and so that's why you know that's why you know when you hear when you hear buzz buzz aldrin talk about being on the moon and he's he's got a very lyrical way of talking about the moon or you talk you you see dave scott or you see uh uh jack schmidt who was the last person to step on the moon uh you know who was a scientist so you got different perspectives you know it's it's about it's important for him it was important for humanity to send people send men and send people up there to see that world you know and to bring back you, you know they sent probes they could send they could get video from the moon all they all they wanted it was important to go there. And let me just say this, and you can cut this out if you want to, Mike. But anybody out there who does not believe that we went to the moon, <laughs> you can come talk to me and Buzz Aldrin, and we will set you straight. Well, I mean, I think we we don't take a hard stance on too many political issues here on Come and Take no. It. But I will say that we do stand to the fact that, in fact, man has walked on the moon. And that Earth there, there is There are four flat. old men. There are four old men out there who will kick your rear end if you tell them. <laughs> Literally, Buzz Aldrin has done that. He will kick your butt 
if, they, if you tell them that they fake the moon landings. Uh, so, yeah. No, no, we're not... Uh, hey, I'm not going to fight with... Uh, the old Buzz got it right. I'm not going to fight yeah. with him. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's funny. So, yeah, Earth is round. Man's been to space. There's now a car orbiting Mars. <laughs> um, <laughs> sort of. Not, on a, yeah. It's kind of a comet-shaped orbit around Mars and Earth. But anyway, yeah, this is, I mean, this is something, something. And I mean, wow, what a life lived. What yeah. a life I, lived. I was real sad when I, when I heard the news that he passed away last week. Yeah. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or get yourself to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. You love this show. You love the idea of space travel. And you love the idea of Texans attempting space travel. So tell your friends about what we're doing. Leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, why not visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>